Welcome to Keep Calm and Cook On. I'm your host, Julia Tertian. Each episode of Keep Calm and Cook On features a meaningful interview and answers to listeners' questions about cooking. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you to OXO for making this episode possible. OXO makes some of the most thoughtfully engineered tools around. To find out more about OXO, head over to OXO.com. That's OXO.com. Kelly Fields is one of my favorite people working in food today. She is the force behind Willa Jean, a restaurant and bakery named after her grandmother in New Orleans, Louisiana. Originally from Charleston, South Carolina, Kelly started cooking and baking when she was young, and she studied under the legendary chef Susan Spicer. Kelly worked at a number of prestigious restaurants and traveled extensively to work with lots of different chefs before she opened Willa Jean in 2015. Her hard work has been celebrated by pretty much every food media outlet there is, and just a couple of weeks ago, Kelly took home a James Beard Award for Outstanding Pastry Chef. We spoke before she received her award, and we got to have a really meaningful conversation about New Orleans, about Hurricane Katrina, about mentorship and leadership, about mental health and therapy and fishing, about identity and queerness, about her dog, about chocolate chip cookies, and more. I admire so much about Kelly, but most of all, that she is always learning. She is always bettering her approach to everything, and she is always sharing whatever she learns with everyone around her. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Will you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm Kelly Fields from Willie Jean in New Orleans, Louisiana. And where are you from originally? Uh, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. And um, can you tell me a little bit about your childhood about little kelly and yeah little little kelly was um we grew up on the water uh my mom grew all the pro- most of the produce we consumed as a family um and she approached pickling and preserving and jamming like she still does like an olympic sport um so that sort of defined how i grew up and and the food that i was around and um Often my responsibility was to come home and catch something and pick something and cook dinner for the family. Yeah, because you like fishing, right? I love fishing. When did you start fishing? I, I don't remember not fishing as, as a human. And how often do you do it now? Not often enough. <laughs> Are you like someone who is like standing on the dock or do you go in a boat or just any way you can? I'm equal however you can fisher. get it. Yeah. yeah. My favorite is fly fishing, which oh. uh, I'm gonna go to Montana next month for my birthday. Awesome. And do some fly fishing. I've always wanted to learn how to do that. You should come. Um, who taught you? Uh, my grandfather on my mom's side. I remember fishing with him. My dad's a big fisher. Uh, it's just, everybody did yeah. it. Yeah. And how do you feel when you're fly fishing? Calm. Yeah. Yeah. Super calm. But it's like harder than it looks, is what I've heard. That's what they say. It's Apparently, like a lot of core a, strength. Yeah, it's one of the few things that like I picked up a rod and somebody showed me how to do it, and that's just what it was for me. And, yeah. Um, the guide that originally taught me how to fly fish was really angry at me at how quickly I picked it up. <laughs> so you're a natural. Apparently, yeah. That's what I'm told. <laughs> I was the only one that catch fish on that trip. So. What brought you from Charleston to New Orleans? Or was there somewhere in between? No, there wasn't. I moved. I graduated from high school in 1996. I moved straight to New Orleans um, to pursue both education and a girl. And um, 
neither one of those things worked out. <laughs> so no. I started cooking. Yeah. Yeah. What what happened with the education? I started cooking. Yeah. Yeah. I met uh I met a woman that I became very good friends with whose parents owned a bakery and they needed help one night and then um sort of called everybody that they knew to come help them do this really large order and you know, the minute I walked in and was taught how to shape a baguette, like I've not looked back since. Was that like fly fishing? You were a natural? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So so like things with your hands, these mm-hmm. tangible things. Yep. They did like you did, yeah. Mm-hmm. What about when it comes to running a business, the things that are not, like, hands-on and stuff? That's such a big uh, part of that is, yeah, I'm, I am learning. I'm on-the-job training yeah. 100%. Um, I learn a lot from my staff every day or my team. I um, have a lot of mentors and a lot of coaches on, you know, especially the past 18 months with, you know, how do I build this brand where it can scale and mm. how do I build this brand where I can actually own it? Mm. Um, and that's been... You know, one of the biggest challenges of my life and also completely rewarding to see these people um, empowered and flourishing and, like, really taking ownership of mm-hmm. their, their space within a space I created. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in it together. A hundred percent. I have so many more questions about kind of leadership and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but I want to back up a bit because when you mentioned the word mentor, I was thinking about um, Susan Spicer. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about her, how she yeah. came into your life, what role she's played? Yeah, this is, I told this this story this morning, as a matter okay, of fact. Okay, so you're warmed up. Yeah, so um, when I decided to start cooking, um, it was right as the Food Network became a thing. Um, it wasn't really a valid career choice uh, in the world, and especially in my family. Um, and my grandmother, Willa Jean, decided that if I loved it, I needed to do it. And so I told her, I was like, I can't really afford to do that. Cooks get paid at that point. It was five twenty-five an hour. Um, how anybody ever lived off that, I'm not sure. Because <laughs> um, now it's so lucrative. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the whole world's different. <laughs> not true. Um, so my grandmother, she's like, as long as you never tell your cousins, I'll pay your rent. But if you found what you love, you have to do it. Um, so I started work at the bakery that my friend's parents owned. Um, and my grandmother encouraged me to seek out chefs that I admired or who I wanted to like emulate in, in the growth of my career. And, you know, Susan Spicer was and continues to be top of the game in New Orleans. She had just won the James Beard Award. Um, and she had just opened a project, her second project, which was Spice Inc. in the Warehouse District, that was so far ahead of its time, I can't even, like, it blows my mind to think about yeah. that. Yeah, roughly around what kind of year is this? This was 1998-ish. Okay. Um, and so I researched just enough about Susan and her history and how she got to food to think that I could charm her in an interview. <laughs> Somehow it worked. What, um, tell me your like. I found you out like tips? you know she got. I just tried to be relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the bakery experience had laid a pretty good foundation for me, and I felt like I knew something about mm-hmm. cooking. Um, I was terribly, terribly wrong about myself in that. Um, so I got hired. I started the next morning at like three a.m. Um, under the pretense that I knew things that I did not know. And so I learned, I paid attention enough to learn to ask the pastry chef of the, of the spot, like, how do you want it done? 
and she would explain to me how to make pastry cream, like in her you know, to her standard. And so I would spend twelve hours a day doing that, and I would go home and write everything down. Wow! And that is the literal foundation of my pastry knowledge and experience. It was sort of hands-on and then writing it so you'd yep. remember it. Uh-huh. Do you have those notebooks? Still? I do. Yeah. I, I have some of them. I lost some of them in Hurricane mm-hmm. Katrina. Um, and then, you know, the night I evacuated New Orleans, I stopped at a Barnes & Noble and bought a notebook and, like, literally wrote down everything I could wow. remember. Wow. And do you refer or did you refer to those notes or it was just the act of writing it down? I still refer to yeah. those notes wow. to this day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And um, for, I feel like you spoke a little bit about, um, you know, what Susan was doing at the time. But mm-hmm. I feel like she's someone who's just not um, maybe celebrated in the way she deserves to be, which is true of I think that's many women <laughs> in true. general. Yeah. Um, and in food. So for someone who's not from New Orleans or doesn't know about her, like, how, how do you describe her? Who is she? Um, Susan, to me, is sort of... You know, under under Miss Chase, she's like the mother of of New Orleans cuisine, and and really contributed to what New Orleans modern dining looks mm-hmm. like. And she had uh, Bayona, which I think just turned thirty, which wow. is unbelievable. Um, and it was sort of a hodgepodge of everything that had made Susan Spicer Susan Spicer. It still is today, and um, it is simple but beautifully executed food. Um, and she doesn't. Now she has Rosedale and she has Mondo, and she doesn't maintain a high profile. Like she's really enjoying her life and um, really imp- like she empowers the community around her and the people that work for her in a way that should absolutely be celebrated as loud as possible. But she's just under the radar. It sort of brings up an interesting point. I was just talking to someone about. Um I mean, you even mentioned your business, like figuring out how you can scale it and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And I think we live in an age right now where it's about scaling and recognition and these things we're talking about right Right. now. And then I hear something like that about Susan, who's built such, you know, unbelievable business, multiple businesses Mm -hmm. who support so many people, has such a community. And do you feel like, I mean, I know you can't speak for her, but do you feel like maybe she she doesn't want to scale more. Like, maybe that is, is she just happy in that? I mean, I, from the outside, and just, you know, I don't see any reason she has to. Yeah, yeah. And I think she is, she is of the school that I would like to be of, where she's growing as she has to, not mm. that she wants to, but mm. because she has somebody on her team that needs to take the next step, mm-hmm. and she wants to invest in that person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just inter- I think it's like sort of, you know, at least for me, brings me back to like, why am I doing or why is anyone doing what right. they're doing and what is the goal? Right. Yeah. Like, I think for Susan, Susan's reached a point where I would like to reach where like, it's not about me anymore. Mm. It's about the people. Who, is that your desire? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, I don't think it's about me now. But I definitely want to make myself pretty irrelevant in the lives of the people who have built this dream of mine. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about some of those people. Who, who are you working with? I have Lizzie. We're, we're looking um, at her. Lizzie She's is here. here. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lizzie is, I like to call her my chief of staff. Mm-hmm. Um, she has organized, I think, the business in a way that I never knew it could be organized. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a, you started as a barista? Most. A host, a host and then a barista, yeah. what, two years ago, two and a half years ago? Yeah, almost there. Um, yeah. And I saw Lizzie once, you know, she's a very 
very good with the gas, very, you know, sweet and kind and sort of like, I would say underestimated. And then I saw her snap at somebody and hold, like not in a negative way, but like hold somebody yeah. accountable. And I was like, Lizzie, do you want to be my assistant? Like I need that sort of accountability in my life of somebody like sitting in the office with me when I'm doing emails or whatever. And um, she said yes. And I told her straight up, I don't think I need you. I'm told that I need you. <laughs> um, I don't necessarily know how to use like what you bring to the table in the right way. And I don't know what to ask you for. So um, she went to work for uh, another assistant who I admired the work that she did for her boss um, for a number of months. And I was like, just come back and ask me what you need. And you do what you do what you do. And she's literally changed, changed the game. And how 100%. long ago was that? What, a year and a half ago now? A year and a half. Yeah. Can I do something maybe unorthodox? Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. Do you mind? Can I pass sure. this to you? Can you, just, can you just tell me, is what Kelly just described, is that how you would tell the story? And how would you, what was your experience in that? And how did that feel when Kelly kind of asked you to step into that role? Sure. Well, I, sorry. So starting off at Willa Jean, I was actually like in the middle of school and, um, she approached me and asked me for this. I was in, in school for business. And then she approached me and I was like, this is just such a great opportunity. And I think anyone who works at Willa Jean, it's such a family and it's something, it's a very special place. And I think that's something that really drew me to the position and to Kelly and to kind of learning the whole entire business. And I mean, I'm going to be honest beforehand, I'd you know, she's the boss. She's a, one of the, the owner, partner of the restaurant. And I didn't really get to spend a whole lot of time with her. So I'm so, I feel so grateful to learn from her and like the rest of the team. And it really is a great place and I absolutely love it. So, yeah. Thank you. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, okay. but that's great to hear. I get the she vibe. Be used to, but yeah. I'm constantly putting. I get the, the vibe. Spot. You're not just saying that because Kelly's sitting here. Oh no, no. I'm not. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we're pretty transparent with each other. Um, you mentioned the night you evacuated. You went. You bought the notebook. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you go? You left New Orleans. Yeah. Well, my intention was to stay in New Orleans because every storm in my New Orleans experience so far. So, like up to that point was, it was the big one. It was mm-hmm. the one we had to leave for. And then you try to evacuate and it's a miserable experience. I'm a cook, therefore I have no money. I don't have the means to like take time off work or buy gas for the car and like spend all this time um, and energy trying to find a hotel when, you know, 300,000 people are also in the same position. Um, so I was gonna stay. And then the morning of the storm, uh, my uncle called me, who at that point was a military man. He's like, get out. Hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm going to stay. Like, da, da, da. I'm taking these precautions. Um, and then I turned on the TV, and I was like, oh, shit. This is bad. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this the, the news popped up, and the storm took up the entire Gulf of Mexico and was, like, dead on towards New Orleans. And so... My roommate and I decided to go. I like pulled the clothes that were on in my dryer, threw them in a bag. I forgot my wallet. I like put some stuff up high. Like I put my computer up high. I put like I had a couple of guitars I put up like on my bed, thinking like if it flooded, they'd be safe. Um, I had a cat and I was dog sitting and I put them in the car and I left. 
And Where'd it took you go? 16 hours to get to Fort Walton Beach, Florida, which is 200 miles east. Um, it was miserable. And by the time we got to Mobile, like, there was already water and flooding happening um, along that drive. So I went and stayed at an uncle in Fort Walton. Uh, we watched the news for two days, and we're like, we're not going back. Not for a while. So I drove up to my mom's house. I went to Charleston, and then my mom had just located right outside of Asheville, North Carolina. <laughs> um, so I went up there and sort of, like, collected myself, so to speak, and tried to figure out what was next. Yeah. And... Can I ask what impact it had on your home? Like, oh, yeah, that house is gone. 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 Yeah. That yeah. computer on the shelf. Yeah. Gone. I mean, it seems like the silliest thing I've ever done yeah. is to move a computer three, like three feet up. But I mean, in moments. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. yeah. No, that house. Know? It took on, it was three feet off the ground and it took six feet of water inside. Wow. So it was, I was told. And so how long did you stay with your mom? Um, long enough to understand that. New Orleans would not be open for business yeah. anytime soon. Um, I started sort of figuring out, okay, if I can't go back, where am I going? Um, and started sort of taking job interviews, and I did a tasting for uh, the Biltmore State in Asheville because mm-hmm. it was close, mm-hmm. um, and ended up landing the pastry chef job there and took it. Wow, that place is massive. It's not small. <laughs> It's not, it's not that as a fact. I think the fact they told me is the White House would fit in that house four times. Wow. Which, like, blows my mind. And so how long were you there? I was there for a little less than a year. Okay. Because um, after I started, about a month after I started there, uh, we could then get back in New Orleans. So um, my roommate ended up at the Billboard, too. We just sort of, like, were there. Mm-hmm. Um we drove back down to New Orleans to see the house because we had no idea. Like, you try to, like, Google map it and mm-hmm. you try to see what's happening on the news. And uh, you see, like, friends and people you know, like, airlifted off their roofs. Wow. It's crazy. Um, and he kept super positive. He's like, no, it's going to be fine. Your roommate. It's going to be fine. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, realistically, if we saw this on this block, like, our block is the same. Um, so we walked into our house for the first time after the storm. And it is the most eerie, creepy, like, feeling of violation that you could, like, have in that moment of something completely inanimate. Like, there was chaos in that house and, the like, just created by the water. Um, and we immediately were like, we can't come back mm-hmm. here. So we, like, figured out if we could bring anything with us. Um, Almost everything was ruined. There were a couple of things. Like, we set up a big portable crawfish boil pot in the backyard with, like, bleach and water mm-hmm. and cleaned what we could. Uh, what was worth saving. To me, that was, like, my grandmother's bowls and a couple, of, like, pieces of china I had. But, every, like, everything else in that house went to the garbage. That house went in the garbage, basically. Yeah. And you guys are two of the lucky ones. I mean, Oh, extremely lucky. Of your lives. Yeah. 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 Extremely lucky. And then when did you return to New Orleans permanently? Um, I returned to New Orleans in 2010. Okay. was the last time I showed back up there. (laughs) Do you, I mean, obviously you don't know about weather or other storms, but does New Orleans feel like where you're going to be? It does. Forever? It does. Yeah. I mean, New Orleans is one of those towns when you, when you're there, it's, it is you or it's not. Mm -hmm. Like there's a very, very little middle ground on that. And 
you know, I left New Orleans before Katrina to go to culinary school and somehow ended up back there. And then, you know, I stayed away five years after Katrina and, I, you know, traveled the world and worked everywhere and ended up right back there. Like, something about that city is, mm-hmm. is me. Do you know what it is? I think it's everything. It's hard to describe. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's the community. It's the, like, landscape. It's, you know, the architecture. It's the food. It's just, like, the culture of the yeah. city. Yeah. I'm speaking to you in a conference room in New York City. You are? You are not in New Orleans right now. Correct. How do you feel when you're out of the city? Do you feel kind of untethered? <laughs> no, no. I, I, you know, I've been really lucky in my ability to travel uh, my entire life. And um, I really like to be wherever I am. Um, in New York, I, I love New York in, in a completely different way mm. than New Orleans. But, like, it's always amazing to go home. Yeah. 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 How do you feel, like, when you touch down? Relief. Yeah. Like, just sort of, like, uh, and a lot of that is, you know, I do miss the restaurant when I'm not there. I miss my dog. I miss my, like, just being home and, like, having the ritual of that and yeah. knowing, like, you know, even something as stupid as, like, taking a shower and, like, being in your own shower. Yeah. 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 I, I love that. that. Yeah. Can we talk about your dog for a second? Yeah. My favorite we can talk topic. talk about my dog forever. <laughs> What, your dog is Kenny? Kenny. Where did you come up with the name or he came with his well, name? Well, he, um, his name was Rocky at the shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, he had, I met him, I saw his picture on the SPCA website and something was just immediately like, that's my dog. Mm-hmm. I'd never considered getting a dog before this point. I don't even know why I was on that website. I was about to, to ask, you're on the website. Okay. Um, <laughs> I saw that dog and I was like, that's my dog. And I went and I met him and the woman's like, he's really nippy, you know, be careful. He's mm-hmm. not like, he hasn't actually bit anybody um, and he's super high energy. And I was like, oh, great. You know, like, oh. And so I walk in and he like smelled me and he like rolled over and gave me his belly. And the woman's like, well, I've never seen him do that before. Um, he was adopted by somebody else oh. before I was able to go back. Plot twist. He got returned. Oh my gosh! Because uh, I guess a roommate had an allergy, is what I was mm-hmm. told. Um, and then the election happened, and I was like, "Okay, I need like some sort of immediate therapy." What election? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on. Um, so I went to the SPCA again, and there he was, because um, that was like petting dogs. What's mm-hmm. better than that to like ease a little pain in your in your soul? Um, and there he was, and I was leaving the next day for New York. Um, and at that point, I had a partner who had moved in who had a dog, and I was like, "You need to go tomorrow, and make sure that your dog will get along with my dog mm-hmm. and bring my dog home." And I came to New York, and I'm showing pictures of my dog to everybody. I'm like, "This is my new dog. This is my new dog." The dog got adopted right after, <laughs> right after we had left that day, so he was no longer available. And I was heartbroken. Uh-huh. Um, and I had given up. And some, like the day before Thanksgiving, I was like, let me just look again. And there he was. And I called, like I was in the office at Willow Jean, and I called and I said, this dog's picture is back on the website. Does that mean he's back or somebody didn't update the website? They're like, no, he's back. And I was like, I am coming right mm-hmm. now. Take him off the website. And he yeah. and I have been in true love ever since. And um, 
I, I bring him up because I'm a fellow dog lover, yeah. but also it seems to me that your dog offers this sort of balance in your life. Forces it. Yeah. And I think whenever I've spoken to anyone who does any work in a restaurant, let alone has the responsibility you have, mm-hmm. I think this question of work-life balance always comes up, which I don't know if that's a thing. It is absolutely a thing. <laughs> and so is your dog a big part of that? Yeah. He, yeah. Um, he forces, like, I have to be home. Yeah. I have to, you know, as much as I have to take care of everything at work, like, he is my priority in life mm-hmm. as far as, like, being away from work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, he goes to, I don't call it daycare, doggy daycare, because I'm not that person who goes to school <laughs> a couple of days a week. Does he have a lunchbox? No, no, he doesn't. He, eats in the, he only eats in the morning and at night, but. Um, Backpack? No. <laughs> He does have a backpack. He does. Yeah, because he's such a like he's such a his his mix of breed is like a total worker. So when he has the the backpack on, mm-hmm. he really feels like he's working mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like rocks. Yeah, and yeah. He gets so focused. It's really cute. He gets really focused and like real serious about what he's doing when he has a backpack on. It's awesome. <laughs> so he's a hard worker. He is. Yeah. He just wants to, like, do a good job and please people. Yeah. So we are the same person. I was about to say, <laughs> sounds like someone I know. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, that is so funny. <laughs> and to answer the question about his name, like, his name was Rocky, so I kept that. And then I named him Kenny after Sleater Kenny because I'm obsessed in a, in a way some people might think is unhealthy, but it's fine. Um, So I want to ask you, again, I keep saying I'm going to ask you more questions about business and leadership, but you bring up Slater Kinney. So can I ask you a personal question? (laughs) Because that to me is the best segue ever. So we were talking about a previous conversation I had with Ashley Christensen Mm -hmm. on Keep Calm and Click On episode number. I have no idea. And when I asked her how she identifies, and you said you were listening to that episode and sort of thinking of your own answer. Right. So can I ask you that question? How I do mean, you identify? I have always identified as queer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that word has evolved so much so yeah. quickly um, in such a short amount of time. Um, I don't know if I fully relate to it on every level mm-hmm. which it's used now. Um, you know, like I said, I'm, you know, about to turn 41 and sometimes I'm a 12-year-old boy and sometimes, like... I kind of like to think that I am everything at once mm. most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. But queer is definitely, like, I've never been anything but this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a hard word because it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's meant different things over yeah. time. And, um, yeah, it's, it's something I think about a lot because it's yeah. not a word I used probably until more recently. Right. Because when you say, like, you're at once, you know, a 41-year-old fill-in-the-blank business mm-hmm. owner, woman, I don't, whatever yep. word you want to use, but then you're also a 12-year-old boy. Right. <laughs> um, but, but, also, but to me, the thing that's interesting about the word queer is that it is encompassing of so many right. things. And right. I like that it's a word that many of us can belong to. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, I really, like, I love the way and the power that that word has evolved for mm-hmm. and the way that, especially, like, the you know, I want to say the younger generation, like, I'm an old lady, but, like, the the power and the the sort of like knuckle down of that word mm-hmm. that the younger generation is using like it is it inspires me every day yeah yeah 
Yeah, I sometimes, I mean, this might be weird to say or admit, but sometimes I feel like almost a little nervous when I use it. Yeah. Like, is this, an, no, no, no. is this right? But then it's like younger, I mean, I'm not that old, but then younger people use it in this way that is the way right. you just described yeah. and is really inspiring. And it, yeah, it's really, I mean, for me in my own story, like being able to say that word with the confidence that mm-hmm. most people who are using it this day use it is just like, that's the hesitation with yeah. me is like, there's no hesitation. There's just absolute confidence I'm queer. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, that, like, what yeah. does that feel like? Yeah. 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 I, I hear you. No. Yeah. Do you, um, in your identity, do you, is it something you think about a lot in your sort of front-facing parts of your work um, when you're doing an event or you're getting publicity for something? Is that something that you put forward or think about in any way? Uh, it's not like a conscious, like I have to be seen as mm-hmm. this or like I want to be seen as me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is absolutely part of who I am. And um, But it's not like I don't, I don't try to be anything but myself. So I don't like try to be like more like masculine of center or uh, less as mm-hmm. the case may be. Like I want to show up as who I am. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like learning how to do that after growing up in a way that didn't allow me is, is is a really big challenge sometimes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I grew up in the Bible Belt, Charleston, yeah. South Carolina. <laughs> I don't know what else needs to yeah. be said. But yeah. Do you? Um, does New yeah. Orleans feel like a comfortable and kind of free place it for does. you? I yeah. mean, it's it's thank thankfully it's a it's a really bold you know, blue dot in the middle of a red ocean. Mm-hmm. And um, I think New Orleans, part of what I love about it and part of what brings me back there is New Orleans celebrates itself and everybody in it for exactly who they are, like, regardless of how, like, you know, on off the spectrum or how radical or how, like, you know, traditionally freaky people, like, we get crazy. Like, we just meant what, three weeks in a city, like, in costume, dressed up, throwing things off of moving objects. Like, it's a crazy And everyone else city. is, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not just you. Yeah, alone. no, and it's celebrated, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, like, if you're not participating in that, you're missing the whole point. Mm. How do you feel during, like, Mardi Gras during that? Every Mardi Gras is really different. Yeah. Um, this year, I rode in my first parade ever, which was... Tell me more about it. Oh, my God. So, so I rode in Muses. I got invited to ride in Muses. What does that is, mean? Um, it's the parade on Thursday night. Okay. So every parade has a name. Um, and then the crew, and you have the floats, and every parade has a, a theme. And generally, all it does is mock New Orleans politics or you know, national politics or whatever. Like, it's all, like, a parody of us. And it's just, like, making fun of who we are and how we got there or whatever state we're in. Um, So Muses is an all-woman crew that started 19 years. I think it's about to be the 20th year. Don't quote me on that. Um, And every parade has its throw that's, like, the thing you want. Muses is shoes. Oh, the things you throw off. Yeah. So, so you do, if like, we're not from New Orleans, we think of beads, yeah. but there's other things. Yeah, but okay. every every parade has the collectible, the thing you want. Um, muses, issues. And so I have learned how to glitter shoes. Cause glitter you, shoes. Yeah, you get shoes. You like, like, like bedazzles? Yeah. Wow. Like spray paint them. 
um, and then cover them in glitter and decorate them. Got the it. more elaborate, the more, like... Where are you getting the shoes from in the I first place? I just went to, like, Payless or okay. something. Like, I just bought a bunch of shoes yeah. and spray-painted them silver. And then I learned how to take tacky glue and, like, create a glitter shoe. Yeah. And now that is something you know how to do. People take it so seriously. <laughs> and to be fair, like, decorating... The skill set of decorating cakes translated so well. Fascinating. Yeah, so... For you my first year, I did really good shoes. So uh, one of my friends had a, a gathering, like a champagne and fried chicken, where we were all decorating shoes. And they all got kind of angry with me because I was like, it was literally my first shoe. I was like, is this how I do it? This is a theme for you. You're, yeah. Are you hearing this? No, no, no. Well, I mean, it's cake decorating. It's like smearing something on and then decorating it. So, um, yeah, I mean, what, 18, 19, 19 shoes? Wow. Yeah. And so and then you're throwing them off, people collect them. Yeah. And so are you collecting things? I don't collect like, things. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. I was gonna ask where you keep I mean, those. I really enjoy the process of like people watching and stuff, but I generally like anything I catch I give to kids because mm-hmm. they usually are too short to really get what they want. So I don't need to keep that stuff. <laughs> I feel like I went off on a real side road here. Yeah, but I'm glad we went here. Um do you find, back to sort of the kind of like queer identity question, um, I mean, we talked a bit about Susan Spicer, but do you do you have any fellow queer folks in food who you would consider a mentor? Yeah, uh, I went after Katrina. I ended up in San Francisco for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked under Sheena Lydon, mm-hmm. who now works here in New York City. Um I befriended and sort of hold very dear in my heart Tracy Desjardins, um, Karen Akonowitz from Boston, and Tiffany. It's like, just like all heart. Yeah, there's so much. There's so many, just like pillars of greatness out there, and queer women in the in the industry that are so generous with their time and yeah. their love. And and do you find do you so someone like Susan Spicer who's not queer. Correct. Do, do you find, are you getting something different from the women in your queer community than you get from women who aren't? Or No, I think the, like, no, I, I'm, I had to think about that yeah. for a minute. I'm sorry. No, that's um, fine. I think the there's a much more measurable difference in the, the coaching or mentoring or the conversations I'm having with um male chefs or mm-hmm. male people in the industry and, and their perspective and the way they come at the same problems as the women. It, it's not, it's, there's not a big difference between uh, a straight identifying woman and a uh, queer identifying woman and, and how they approach the issues of which I'm like seeking help or guidance or perspective on. But the men always have a totally different way of thinking. That's so interesting. That it's really, you know, sometimes it's totally dead on and sometimes it's like way off Mm -hmm. um and what do you what do you get from your experience um and from the sort of conversations you're having with women however they identify that you're sharing with men that you feel like they're not getting (laughs) (laughs) how much time do you have (laughs) that's a a whole another podcast um i mean for me it's about you know and this has been the the struggle for the last you know, four years since right before Willa Jane Open is me unlearning the example that had been set for me for 
15 years in this industry working for um, men. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sort of idea, I have this, uh, Michelle Batista that has the Nightwood Society in Portland, every day she reminds me, like, stop trying to boil the ocean. Mm. And that I don't have to have all the answers all at once. And it is one foot in front of the other and um, approaching every interaction um, without agenda and without, like, sort of being guarded and, like, trying to remember that. Where, um, you know, all these women sort of have that same approach where men just, they want the answer, they want to implement it, and they want it to be done, Mm -hmm. in my experience. And I know not all men like that are out there, but reminding like sort of because I feel like I'm such in the middle of how they how women approach it and how men approach it and my my brain is feels equally those um sharing with my guy friends like don't boil the ocean yeah stop trying it's never gonna work it's like, really good advice yeah it's, it's good advice for everyone yeah yeah it's hard like every day it's hard because yeah. you want like you see so much potential to grow and do great things and you know create equity in our workspace and and really embrace what diversity is beyond numbers. And, like, I want it done right now. Mm. And if I take that approach, it's never going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I needed to hear that. (laughs) Yeah, it's really, I feel like we're maybe closer to seeing these things that maybe Mm -hmm. in a different time, I don't know if we would have even been able to afford to dream of necessarily right. like a more equitable workplace that kind of thing so it's like when you can kind of see it you, you want it I mean yeah. I get that yeah. yeah but then to make that happen is like we have to undo yeah. a lot and I mean even in myself undoing that and you know we talked I talked earlier about like every once in a while like when we're really busy and we're just like cooking and, and you know we have a very brunch very busy brunch service and there's an interaction and I switch and then like Lizzie tells me all the time, I preface things like I'm not mad, but like I believe in efficient use of language in a kitchen and I am direct. Like there's no bullshit. There's mm-hmm. no room for it. Mm-hmm. You don't have time for it. I don't have time for it. And that allows me to sort of take a giant step back sometimes in an in a interaction. The difference now is I get to sit down and be like, this is, this is why, like not making excuses, but this is why, like explaining why I would react that way understanding and recognizing with that person that it was not the correct way for me to go about it and talking about how we could both do better in the interaction next time. Mm -hmm. Like those are conversations that there was never room for Mm. before. And I think the more we sort of collaborate as an industry and especially as women, the closer we can get to, to all the things that we, we see right on the horizon. Yeah. Um, but I feel like we're finally entering a place where collaboration is is a big part of that. Yeah. And it's no longer, like, competitive. It's no longer, well, if you don't have all the answers, you're not doing the right thing. And I am really trying to embrace that part. I heard you say once, I wrote it down. Oh, Lord. I heard you say, if we haven't fucked up something royally, we haven't tried to be better. Mm-hmm. And that really stayed with me, and I feel like it's so much of what you're talking about, just making space to figure things out and maybe talk to each other and have the space and the freedom and the safety to maybe mess things up sometimes. Um, It's a really like privileged place to be, to mm -hmm. be able to afford the opportunity for myself and others to fuck up and, and learn from it. Like 
it's not a space I've ever been in, in in my career and especially like growing Willa Jean, like there was like we were messing up all the time. We didn't have time to address it or time to like really like feel the joy of the ability to do that. Mm. And now I feel like it's so important to kind of sit in that and be like, we're allowed to fuck up because we don't all know what we're doing. We don't know, like this business is evolving every day in a really beautiful way, but like Nobody has all the answers. It sounds like you're almost describing it like a sort of before and after. Like there was a shift to kind of make that space and those conversations and stuff. And yeah. is that something you – did that just kind of happen naturally? Were you very kind of proactive about making that sort of shift in sort of, I guess, company culture? Um, I've tried to be proactive about it. And the best way I've gone about that so far is like internally with myself. Mm. Not just internally, but like – sort of accepting the things about myself that I need to work on, um, accepting where I've come from and where I directly want to go back to sometimes when, you know, uh, somebody confronts me on something. I don't I don't get defensive anymore. I don't, like... What does that internal work look like for you? Do you oh, go therapy. to therapy? Yeah, yeah. therapy all the time. Yeah. The dog's therapy. Yeah. Like, um, these really open, honest conversations with the women we've been talking yeah. about. Like... You know, and I have that sticker on my computer in the office that says accountability feels like an attack when you're not ready to, uh, I just lost it. (laughs) (laughs) Accountability feels like an attack when you're not ready to accept how you impact others. Say it one more time. Accountability. Accountability feels like an attack when you're not ready to accept how you impact others. Wow. And I look at that. Where do you day. get that sticker? We all need that sticker. Um, Michelle, for sale same at willagene.com. <laughs> no, no, it's really. a post-it note, technically. But um, Michelle, the same woman who reminds me daily, don't Not try to, to boil, boil the ocean. ocean. We were talking. She had an event with the woman that wrote fuckery uh-huh. uh, at the at the Nightwood Society, and you know we were talking about where in our career, personal and professional lives, did we live that. And, like, we have check-ins all the time of, like, where are we really? Is that something, those check-ins, like, is that in your calendar or that just happens naturally? It just is always happening. Yeah, yeah. I, always, I just think these sort of big things we're talking about, mm-hmm. I'm always so eager to find out what the logistics of it right. look like so other people can incorporate right. them, too. Because right. it's obviously having a really positive impact on yeah. you Absolutely. personally, it seems Absolutely. like, and professionally. Yeah. Can I ask if you don't mind, when when did you start going to therapy? And how, how did that begin um, for you? I started in 2000... When did we open Willow Jane? 2015? So, like, 2013 was mm-hmm. the first time I was in therapy and, like, actually actively wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. Um and it's been, you know, a series of, of pretty intense, like, once a week, sometimes twice a week, depending on, like, talk therapy or, or psychiatrist. Or, um, and then I could go months without. Mm-hmm. Um, but I go every Monday, every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Yeah. So that's a good time for you? Uh, most of the time. Yeah. It's been a little iffy lately. <laughs> um, and I also have added to what I consider therapy is on Wednesday nights I take drum lessons now. Awesome. And I'm terrible. And oh I'm my God, okay something you're it. bad at. I'm so delighted. <laughs> I, and it's so, it's so good to, to not have to be good at something. Yeah. And like still really enjoy Like it doesn't matter that I'm yeah. not good. Like I love doing it. Yeah. 
How does it feel when you're holding those sticks? It's so fun. It's like just... I'm assuming like drumstick, like a drum drum kit, or you're playing like a bongo? No, drum kit. Drum kit. Yeah. Okay. I realize there's a lot of drums in the world. There there are. (laughs) I would be probably better suited for like the marching band and just having my Uh drum, but um, I just, it's the best time. Like I'll put my phone down, like there is literally nothing else in the world I can be doing at that moment than playing those drums. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm committed to. How did you find your teacher? It's New Orleans. There's musicians <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's I, I was probably in a group. It. I don't even remember, but I, I think I was in a group, and I was like, I've always wanted to take drum lessons. I should do that. And so I went, oh, I know a guy. And da, da, da. That's yeah. how everything happens in New Orleans. I went a couple months ago. I went to this um, singing workshop. Oh, yeah? I am not a singer. Yeah, I can't No sing. plans to be. Um, but I had this real, I was feeling a little kind of overwhelmed and scattered, uh-huh. I would say. And I felt this real desire to do something that would force me to be incredibly present and also a little bit yep. uncomfortable and yep. something that scared me. Yep. And I went to this workshop and it was me and, I mean, I was the youngest by like 30 years. It was uh-huh. 17 women and ended up being, I mean, it was a riot. Awesome. But we learned, the teacher was teaching us, there was no like paper with words. It was like she sang and we had to sing back and mirror it. So like you had to be completely present because it was like words I don't know and singing and all these right. things. And it was just hours of just <laughs> me and my pals That's singing. Awesome. But it really felt just so present. That was my big takeaway. Yep. And I could imagine drumming would be that yep. amplified. It feels, yeah. it feels like it's the same. Are there other people there? It's just nope, you just and the teacher and the, and the yeah. yeah. His name is Patrick. Patrick. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So cool. Um, I don't want to take up all of your time. Mm. What did we did we not talk about something you want to talk about? Like business and leadership? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you talked a lot about it, sort yeah. of creating those spaces and mm-hmm. stuff. Do you, do you like being a boss? Do you consider yourself a boss? I have struggled for a very long time to take myself seriously mm-hmm. because I have literally grown up in an industry in a world where I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so being a boss. Where you weren't taken seriously. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, and sort of told that I wasn't serious. like I was the pastry chef. Like mm. this, I was the girl upstairs, and nobody really worried about it. So I'm learning how to sit in that mm. sort of idea of being a leader. And like like the the post it on my my computer says like learning that my behavior actually does have an impact on people because people do see me as a boss, even though in my head I'm like I have no idea what I'm doing ever. Um, so I'm I'm learning quickly what that looks like, mm-hmm. and I, I do it's it's making me a much better person, mm. and for that I'm grateful. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, how many people work at Willa Jean? Um, last count was 113. That is a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. We're of a very people. busy restaurant. Wow. Somehow. Can um, we take a quick chocolate chip cookie? Yeah. Side road tangent 100%, 100%. moment. 100%. What, those are, what, they're, that, describe what comes to you if you order the chocolate chip cookies. Um, if you order the chocolate chip cookies at Willa Jean, you get a plate. It's got a little piece of paper with my grandma's handwritten recipes on wow. it. Wow. Um, you get a cup of vanilla milk. To me, it's just like melted. I always stirred my ice cream up when, a mm-hmm. kid, when I was a kid to melt mm-hmm. it. So it's like melted vanilla ice cream. Three warm chocolate chip cookies and an egg beater cookie dough, because that was always the point of conflict between me and my siblings. So everybody just gets it. Now. Yeah, yeah. So you have 
actively created the moment you wanted. Yeah, as a child. from start to finish, yeah. everything that I loved about when my mom would make chocolate chip cookies, which was all the time, in one dish. Yeah, yeah. When I had the experience of being delivered this moment yeah. <laughs> at the restaurant, it just seemed just every detail was thought through, and it was like. Anything you could want in that experience was provided. Yeah. It was all there. And, and it simple. didn't have to be explained. Yeah. It was just very clear. Yep. And I feel like, you know, it's, it's a fun thing and it is simple, but that's a really powerful thing to I kind of deliver so. that. Yeah. And yeah. it took me, I made chocolate chip cookies at least once a day for two and a half years to get to the point They're where I served them perfect. in that restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Do you think so? Do you feel that way? I still almost every day eat one and I am seven years deep in chocolate chip cookies. So if it's still edible to me, I'm not sick of and them you're yet, still happy. I think it's yeah. a pretty good cookie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Um, do you, what do you see for you for the future and kind of continuing to, you said this sort of leadership role is something you're actively right. learning and what does it ideally look like to you? Do you have um, like an image in mind a year from now, five years from now? Yeah, I would like to, to scale Willa Jean to the point where the people who have, put in their time and their, you know, their energy and their love into this restaurant, which, you know, there are countless numbers of them. Um, I want to be in the place to invest in what their willaging is, Mm -hmm. whatever that Mm -hmm. dream is of theirs, and be able to help guide them in that and, you know, sort of help mentor them from all the mistakes I've made Mm -hmm. and and see them all flourish and do great. Do you, when you say invest, do you mean financially? Yeah, or? financially. Yeah, everything. Like emotion. emotionally, everything. Yeah, yep. that's awesome. Yes. That's really awesome. I think so. I'm excited for that day. Me too. Yeah. I'm glad you're in this industry. Thank I think you. you offer a lot of us quite a lot, and yeah. I appreciate you. it. And I think the time you put into your self-reflection and that yeah. work pays off. I hope so. Awesome. Can yeah. I ask you one last yep. question that is my favorite, mm-hmm. which is... What was your favorite thing to eat when you were growing up? Man, I liked eating everything when I was growing up. Um, you like ask for anything on your birthday or like? I do. My favorite, my favorite thing to eat is my mom would make this chocolate cake with chocolate fudgy ice cream, and my dad taught me to eat it in a bowl of milk. A bowl of milk. Yeah, and I now have like a bowl I, of cereal. Yeah, you of, just put the cake in the milk in the bowl, and you just pour milk over it. Cake and, first, milk. Yeah, and then chocolate fudgy ice cream. No ice cream, just oh, no milk I, and oh, cake. Oh, icing. Yeah, I thought you said ice cream. No, because the icing oh, like changes see, see, with the cold milk, and then the textures change. And um, oh I spread God. that gospel every time I see chocolate cake. I'm like, oh, we need to eat this this way. And I feel like that's something at some kind of crazy molecular gastronomy like boys with their toys type yeah. of restaurant they would serve that and yeah no it's just yeah it's like slice of cake yeah. milk that's all yeah. you need in life i also awesome. really enjoy a brownie sundae like a perfect brownie sundae. sort of similar yeah. what's your ideal brownie sundae really hot brownie fudgy cakey fudgy fudgy because it has to like i really enjoy i have always been a, a fan of textures that change while you eat a dish and so that hot brownie on the cold ice cream and like how that changes throughout uh-huh. the experience of eating it. So that's hot stuff I fudgy really brownie, what vanilla ice cream? Vanilla ice cream, and chocolate sauce, chocolate sauce, and nuts, nuts, whipped cream. No, unnecessary. Cherry. Meh. I don't need it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'm hungry. Thank you so much. <laughs> this was so fun. I really like talking to you. I appreciate your time. 
And just a quick word about OXO, who helped make this episode possible. I use so many OXO tools in my kitchen because they're thoughtfully made. In fact, when you walk into their headquarters in New York, a huge wall in their office is covered with a bunch of different gloves. It's their daily reminder that they make tools for people's hands, and that hands come in all different sizes and shapes and have all sorts of needs. I really appreciate that thoughtfulness, and it comes through when I use OXO's products. Whether it's their angled measuring cups that allow you to see exactly how much is in them even when they're sitting on your counter, or their pop containers that keep everything tightly stored and also visible. For more about OXO and their products, head over to OXO.com. That's O-X-O And be sure to listen to episode 13, titled Behind the Scenes at OXO, for when I got to sit down and talk with two of the amazing women behind the tools at OXO. And now it's time to answer listeners' questions. If you have a question for me, you can send me a DM on Instagram at Tertian or drop an email to keep calm and cook on podcast at gmail.com. One word, no punctuation. And Grace, my wife, is here to be the voice of the listeners and to ask today's questions. Okay, JT, your first question comes from KT Mayonnaise, who would like to know, how did you transition from cookbook editor to author? I've never actually been an editor, but I can tell you how I transitioned from assistant and co-author to author. I worked with a lot of people. I got to know a lot of different editors. I met every deadline. That's really important. I asked a lot of questions, and I spent a lot of time reading other cookbooks, which I still do all the time. When I felt like I had something to say that was particular to me and my experience, and felt like it was worth sharing because it could empower other home cooks, that's when I pitched my first cookbook, Small Victories. The advice I give to every author that I work with and the advice I try to follow myself is to only tell the story that only you can tell. Your next question comes from Mag SJC, who says, I have a phobia of undercooked meat. How did you learn to trust yourself cooking meat? So Grace, we actually talked about this in an earlier episode in season one, because you have a very similar fear. Um, and what we talked about then, which I uh, can reiterate now, is that the only way to learn to trust yourself is to practice. I guess this is true beyond the kitchen, too. There's really no magic way of learning to cook meat. You just have to keep cooking it and learn from experience. A digital thermometer is a really good tool to start. I love the one from OXO. I am not just saying that because they supported this episode. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's a great thermometer. It works really quickly. It's very reliable. I also think a good idea is to start with things that are impossible to undercook. Things like braised brisket or pulled pork or make chicken soup. I can share some of my recipes in the show notes that are good examples of these things. And when you make those things, you show yourself that you can cook delicious meat dishes that are slowly and, you know, lovingly cooked. And then you can start experimenting with things like grilled steaks and pork chops, that kind of stuff that you want to cook just enough and neither under or overcook. And when you're cooking stuff like that, a grilled steak, a pork chop, a chicken breast, keep touching it as it cooks and take its temperature. And that's how you learn what different levels of doneness feel like. And then you build a sort of muscle memory for it. How's it going for you, Grace? Are you learning to trust yourself more? I'm learning to trust you and then just ask you, Julia, is it done yet? Yeah, that works too. (laughs) So your final question comes from Great Kate with an eight, who says, 
I have not really a question, but I really struggle with weeknight cooking after a long commute. Do you have any advice? You don't have to start from scratch. If you have a couple hours on a weekend, make a big pot of rice, maybe some cooked greens, and then a jar of like salad dressing or pesto. You can buy those things too. You don't have to make everything. Um, and then treat these things as your building blocks all week long. You don't have to eat the same meal over and over, but you can use these kind of cooked components to make different meals. So with those components I just mentioned, you can throw together a really quick veggie fried rice with your rice and the greens, plus some eggs, maybe some peas from your freezer. Finish it with soy sauce. That's delicious. Just eat in a bowl while, you know, you're watching Netflix. We do that all the time. You can make a big pot of pasta, maybe whole wheat pasta. If you want something a little bit healthier, toss it with some of that pesto you made or purchased and the cooked greens. Buy a rotisserie chicken on your way home. Serve that with the pesto as just kind of like a sauce and the rice and greens. And then when you're folding laundry or something like that, simmer the bones from the chicken with an onion. And then you can combine that broth with the rest of your greens and rice, maybe throw an egg in that too. You get all these different meals, all really easy to pull together um, from just those few building blocks. So yeah, don't start from scratch. No need to be a hero. Um, just, you know, get everything in place for yourself. Those are all the listener questions today. Thank you so much, Grace, for being the voice of the listeners. My pleasure. And if you have a question for me, just send a DM on Instagram to me at Tertian uh, or send an email to keepcomandcookonpodcast at gmail.com. And before we say goodbye, a quick shout out to an organization that both Kelly and I love, and it's called She Chef. It was started by the incredible L. Simone Scott, and She Chef is a professional networking organization for food entrepreneurs, aspiring and seasoned chefs, and other professionals working in the food and beverage industry. With a special focus on women of color, She Chef aims to bridge the gender and race gap in the culinary industry. Beyond providing hands-on learning experiences in the kitchen, She Chef teaches professionals about the business behind culinary arts and provides information on the latest scholarships, internships, and job opportunities for women to reach their full potential. For more about She Chef, head over to shechef.org. The link is also in the show notes. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Keep Calm and Cook On. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you have a few extra seconds, please rate and review the show. It really makes a difference to help others find it. And let someone know about it. Post about it on social media, text a friend about the show, email your family. It all adds up. Keep Calm and Cook On is produced and hosted by me, Julia Tertian, and engineered by David Tadashore. For more about David, head over to DaveTAT.com. And for more about me and my work and my cookbooks, head over to JuliaTertian.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Tertian. Thanks again for listening. And one final thank you to OXO for making this episode possible. OXO makes some of the most thoughtfully engineered tools around. To find out more about OXO, head over to OXO.com. That's O-X-O dot com. <laughs>